You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have Jarvis Tyner from the Communist Party of the USA to talk to us about the history of the communists in the USA for the last 70 years. What led you to communism? If, I know that's a broad question, but by the way, um, I, I hope this is okay to say because this, since this is audio, um, Jarvis is a Black American. And recently we've gotten this like silly rumors that only like like about race reductionism and class reductionism. So that's why I just wanted people to know that. So what led you into the CPUSA? Uh, that's a good question. A good way to start. <laughs> I was, uh, I got out of high school in 1959 and uh, I had seen all the civil rights activities going on in the city. And at one point- I The was, city meaning New York, right? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, okay. I came to New York in 1967, I think. Yeah. Finally got a job in the factory and I was working and I moved. Uh, I was newly married, a teenage marriage, which did not succeed, I might add. But anyway, we started. <laughs> and then we moved into an area around the University of Pennsylvania, which was a very left-wing area. There were right-wingers in there too, but I mean, it was a very left-wing area. And I ran into the Communist Party Club. I thought it was just a social group, and they were very, very easy to get along with. They were multiracial, and I got involved. Meantime, I was a shop worker and uh, working in the print industry then. And when I got into the union, it was very important. It's a craft union, which is hard. It had three black members out of 1,500 old union. But I found that these comrades were very good in helping me navigate that difficult situation, and I did. But after a while, uh, we got involved in civil rights in that area. We fought against... Um, well, there were barbers in the University of Pennsylvania area who wouldn't cut black hair. What? No, they wouldn't. They didn't know how, they said. The uh, University of Pennsylvania is right next to a black working class area. In fact, I had family and relatives lived there, although I was from another part of West Philly. And they wouldn't cut the hands of Africans, so we, we did a little campaign. We, we formed a group called the West Philadelphia Action Committee. We did that and so on. And then we did another thing, which was to integrate Bandstand, which was located in West Philadelphia. We were youth, you know, so, hey, why not have interracial dancing? They didn't allow it, you know. It was all white kids in there. And uh, so we sent three young people there to uh, integrate Bandstand, and they got on the line. You had to wait outside the line. A guy said, okay, you can come in. Okay, oh, no, you can't. So we thought they would say, oh, no, you can't. But we put three couples, and we separated them. Uh, on the line so it wouldn't be all at once. And when they got to the door, the, the manager at the door says, wait a minute. And so he said, okay, it's going to happen. They're going to throw us off the line and so on. And then out comes Dick Clark and he says, welcome. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is that I know I knew somebody else who challenged them, but she's visually... It's not clear that she's African-American, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to make sure that that point was made. She got on there as a single a young woman. Oh, obviously. <laughs> but she, only, she only danced with women. They she didn't feel the right to dance with men. Because it was like, you know, white would have been interracial, maybe romance. Oh, my God. That couldn't happen. 
So that person was went to high school with me, and you know she she was the first person I saw on there. But anyway, we said they all went in and they danced and everything. They didn't dance interracially; they danced. There was three black couples, but it was accepted. And you know that when Dick Clark finally moved the show to California, it really became integrated then with Latinos, Asians, you know, African Americans, whites, and they allowed them to dance together. But we feel like we started the ball rolling in Philadelphia. That was one of the first things. Meantime, I'm studying. I just want to interject with, as Emma Goldman says, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Emma Goldman, yes. That's right. <laughs> well, but that was our principal form of entertainment at that age. You know, we were, I was like 18, 19. But I, I was actually too old to go on the show. I was out of high school and all that working. So we had to find young people in the organization that we did. And so young communists basically, um, or people in a coalition, some of them were not communists, in a coalition with us, ended up integrating dance then. Now, because you weren't around then. No. <laughs> but this was like 60, 1960, 1961. But the young people were segregated socially, especially. And the Jim Crow concept that the races should mix was operating on these same high school, some were integrated, some were not. Mine was integrated, but barely with whites. And eventually they became predominantly black. But so this was a very important thing to do, we felt. Secondly, I was a shop worker in the union, as I said, and I was uh, at the same time, I was working on union that we had a strike and I was the uh, picket captain. I was the lowest paid worker there, so they made me a picket captain, so I have to come every day. But you got paid, you know. So I did that and then oh, a bunch of things happened. Then eventually somebody said, you know, you ought to join the party, man. <laughs> and I said, what? What party? <laughs> and they said, Kami's party. Oh, that's what you are. <laughs> it was that, it was that, so, you know. And once I did that, uh, I had a chance. I was active in civil rights, really got very active. And uh, I got uh, really involved in the, in the peace movement in that area. It's just, yeah, just piling on the information I've never, never known before. And hope, you know, hope. The Communist Party gave me hope because it showed me that we are not alone as workers. We are not alone as people of color. Or we might be oppressed, but we are not alone. And that the solutions to the deep problems of society included the end of racism and exploitation. And that, that, that moved me a lot. I had um, a very, very happy time in, in, when I was a youngster in there. You know, we had a good social life, you know, and uh, we also went on picnics and we had educational. And the first class I heard that changed, deepened my commitment was a class on political economy taught by Hyman Loomer, who came down, he was the education director, he party came down one Saturday in our bookstore. And it never dawned on me what exploitation at the point of production was theoretically. I knew what it was practically, but theoretically I didn't know what it was, what, it, what the roots of it was. And he had a very clear way of presenting it, and I felt like I needed to be thinking very deeply about, about that. I had already organized the union in another place, but this was a turning point for me. So I joined. I ain't looking back. And that was a great time. It was changed my life. It gave me a lot of meaning, purpose. That's great. So since you said you were a union man, maybe I should ask you about this. So 
like right now a lot of youngsters like they're like you got hired as a full-time person but these days what they're gonna do is do the gig economy thingy where they're gonna it depends on the job they're gonna either like hire you for as a contractor or have you do the little gig thingy what do you see as the future of unions because people in the gig economy are exploited unbelievably and they need to organize but it's hard like how do, along what lines does the future of the working class like who are stuck in like gig economy jobs need to like what are your thoughts mm-hmm. well as long as you have capitalism you better have unions because let's put it this way you work in a shop would you elect your boss to be your shop steward absolutely not. there is a class question and it's real and profits come from the exploitation of workers you work hard you come in every day and you produce goods and services which are worth this amount of money and then you get a part of that money that value you create for your wages and it's never and never fair and since it's under private control and profits count they don't have to give you a wage if they don't want you but if you get a union you have a better chance at it so that's why i think unions will be, you know they will be around they will revive how does one technique like how should one organize now that you don't know who your coworkers are because you're scattered all over the country in the gig mm-hmm. economy mm-hmm. In the, yeah yeah gig economy yeah well some of the gig workers i think have set up some organization like like unions i know the writers union is kind of like that uh-huh. but you have huge masses who are still producing uh in the manufacturing sector uh, i'll just think about the meat packers out in uh, dakotas and how many have died from the virus you know they're all union people and if we were to get to the point where we had uh, for example i would say 50% of the workers organized the power that that would bring to the social struggles altogether would be great and you're not going to get 50% organized without some left wingers like in the 1930s with the CIO jumping in there and even giving their lives for the fight to unionize industrial workers back then but service workers are unionized the biggest unions of healthcare workers and so on they're still a powerful force and they have resources which have helped the whole democratic progressive left wing movement uh survive so it's going to come back because you're not going cuz workers are not um and bosses are not on the same side of the economic equation they're not <laughs> so hey better to have a group behind you than you by yourself and if you by yourself they can always manipulate you and do all kinds of attempts to bribe you and isolate you and fire you i've seen some anti-union propaganda videos that are very scary that make workers so i mean that should be illegal but i i do understand the uphill battle because there's the anti-union propaganda and then there's like sometimes the bosses like in America you can like shut down the entire factory if you don't like unionizing um it, <laughs> so there and that's just out of spite um and like for example Jeremy Corbyn from England said was that if the factory was going to shut down the workers should ha- get the right of first refusal to do a co-op and that way that prevents shutting down from spite so one thing that is hard for people to imagine is that they're only used to what i call a bourgeoisie government 
Mm-hmm. And then when you, as a communist, come and tell people, actually, government needs to do more, they have a hard time imagining how can you both say that this government is corrupt and that the government can do more. So can you explain what the difference between a bourgeoisie government is and an actual workers' government and what you mean when you want an actual workers' government? Mm-hmm. Well, a bourgeois government, to use the French word, but it's really capitalist run. It's a capitalist system. Everybody knows it. A lot of people don't like it, but it's what we have. And every struggle they take every day to make their lives better, health care, education for their kids, housing, wages, working conditions, clean environment. Like most uh, black, most of the uh, polluting energy stations, coal-fired, are near black and Latin communities. Why? Systemic racism. Why? Because it's a producer of not just profits, but super profits. That contradiction is not going away. Now, there's some capitalists who think it has to be modified and liberalized because, after all, eventually these workers are going to rebel. And I, I think the, the Black Lives Matter movement could just as well in the future be a workers. It is predominantly workers, but it could be an organized workers movement, too. We refuse to work under these conditions. We insist on our right to organize. We want decent wages, just like the low-paid workers in service industries, you know, we had a fight and got $15 an hour in some places and it's moving that way for others. It's life. Life is a struggle. Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a struggle, never will. And it's, it's absolutely true. And so many great leaders have said things like that and operated their life on, on that basis and masses have responded. In the 1930s, Unions were literally illegal, and industrial unions didn't exist. They only were organized the craft unions separate. The rest of them didn't have a union. Then companies hired armed militias to shoot down unions, right? Yes, yes they did. And a lot of them, a lot of uh, workers were murdered. And working class families, even in some cases, uh, organizing miners. Rockefeller. Uh, I think it was a slaughter, the Rockefeller family did a, in Colorado, Ludlow, Colorado, I think it was called. They did, the family was all kicked out of the union houses, were living in tents and this thing. They sent the army and burned the thing down and killed hundreds of people. It's a bloody struggle that it made it possible to, to be unions. I think it's a natural thing to organize, and I think that uh, unions will be with us. The form is going to be different, I think, than the old days, maybe. For example, there's some unions who accept the idea that you can join the union if you're unemployed. Uh, you can join the union and be uh, organized by the union. Hey, CIO had this unemployed sort of thing, formation. But independently, there are also people moving to organize unemployed. But they're, the unions try and say, we are for the whole class, not just for our people. You know, And to me, that's a very important, that's class consciousness. You know, Engels, Marx's buddy, Frederick, that's... He said that the trade union is very important. He said it's the military school for the working class. Oh, that's such a good quote. I'm going to put that in. That's a great one. Because, he says, it teaches them how to fight for their rights against a more powerful thing and have to organize and do heroic and great things to fight them back. And he said they become a class 
in itself. They reckon in that union struggle, they realize they are separate class and separate interests that have to be realized historically if we are to have a decent society. They recognize that. They become a class in itself, and as their consciousness grows, they become a class for themselves. And unions were a great way for that level of sort of uh, progression in mm-hmm. consciousness to take place in the world. So they, they no, no, man, they, they, they go. And I'm going to tell you some union leaders who believe in socialism and hate racism, fighting against it. Uh, you got the you got the coalition of black trade unionists, which is amalgamation of uh, black workers from all kinds of unions. But the AFL-CIO, I think, supports it. You had the pride group inside the unions now. You had that before. You now have youth committees in the unions. They're, they're beginning. They're fledgling. But, you know, they're going forward. So keep an eye on that union movement. It's, it's, it's got to confront the uh, ultimate conflict and be a part of those who would advocate a transition to a socialist government. First, I think fighting for democracy is key to getting to that point where that issue becomes real and realizable socialism. But I think unions help workers uh, move that way. They're corrupt unions, they're unions who are company unions and so on. And some of them have been changed, but others remain. But under Trump and the National Labor Relations Act, uh, or URL, has been pretty much neutralized, not neutralized, but you know, they don't do anything to fight for workers anymore under Trump. And I think workers realize that that's an unacceptable situation, unions do. And so if we defeat Trump, which God, I hope we do, it is so freaking, excuse the expression, important that we do that. And that's, that's what's before us right now. That is what we need to get to where we want to go, eventually, to transform society into one that's more democratic, really democratic, socially, and ideologically and politically uh, for liberation of people, not exploitation and oppression. And I think socialism does that because it takes away the profit motive for exploitation, oppression, and why I can get rich doing that. So you got rich under slavery, they got rich under capitalism all the way. Private prisons, it's like a new form of slavery. There you go. There you go. So uh, how long can we take this? And, you know, everybody, Eric Trump is fooling all the workers. They all fool. But not according to the polls now. White men have a problem. <laughs> but white women, the white women seem to have broken away. They vote the uh, anti-Trump vote in the African-American communities in the 90s, especially more African-American women. African-American men are a little slow. But African-American women are in their 90s top 90s against this guy. And that's why the choice of uh, Harris, you know, Kamala Harris, that choice uh, was very, very uh, good move on the part of them. This is the stage where we're at. So you have to fight where you're at. You can't fight where you hoped you were. You got to fight where you're at. You have to look at your battle. And what I see, at least among the young people these days, is that they are very alert to the way U.S. media like disinforms, like for example, if a union workers like they're suddenly causing disruption, there was this Amazon PR piece that all these news stations repeated, and so it's not as easy to get those anti-worker movements through like in the '80s because the young people are so much more 
aware of everything. And, and that's why like our podcast even exists. Like it, this would not have happened 10 years ago, but, but now like we're 100% patron funded as in like people pay five bucks a month and that's how we are funded. Yeah. And so I am hopeful about the future. <laughs> you know what your boss hates more than you listening to podcasts at work about organizing unions? Supporting the creation of even more podcasts to listen to at work about forming unions. So go to historically.substack.com to get newsletters, podcasts, and piss off your boss. So did you meet Fidel Castro? Yes, I did meet him. Uh, Okay, so do tell us. Not not in a shit-down way, but... Glad to meet you, Commandante. You know, shook hands. Okay, okay. So, do tell us about this because uh, uh, everyone's going to be very um, jealous. So, yeah. Oh, well, Fidel, Fidel's like a regular dude. You know, <laughs> he's a baseball player. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, he almost made you know, he almost made the major leagues. He was a pitcher, but oh. you know, what a courageous young man. He came from money, a little bit of money. You know, became a lawyer. So, well, he's a very nice guy. He's very, very welcoming. You know, so when I, I was on an occasion where he was the reception, he was there and I walked in. And we had a world, uh, what is that thing called? We went to down in uh, Atlanta. It was a conference of all left and workers parties in the, in the region. And I went down representing our, our party. And uh, when I thought I spoke, he greeted me and I greeted him. That was very nice. And he makes jokes and all that. And also, he's the longest speech in history, longest <laughs> really? One night, the other night, we had just been there sitting there all day, and Fidel took the floor to sort of sum up the thing. It was already twelve o'clock when we started. Uh-huh. By the time he got to, it was like two thirty <laughs> in the morning, and he would do things like jokingly, "All right, that person in the sixth row, I see you sleeping. Now wake up." <laughs> <laughs> but. But no, but he, he's wonderful, and his contribution to the world struggle is unmatched. Unmatched, what he's done. Why, why would a little country like Cuba, relatively 11 million people, they loom so large around the world uh, with their doctors and with their fighting in Angola and with their uh, general image 90 miles away from the big monster and uh, surviving? And they're constantly getting terrorist attacks from the exiles, and uh, it's like, the amount of terrorist attacks they've survived is um, amazing, like thousands. Mm-hmm. That's right. And there's movements all over the world in solidarity with them in their countries, uh, despite the various laws here that tell them they can't trade with Cuba. They have countries who figured out how to do it, and they're doing it. Cuba's, Cuba's hanging in there, and they're doing it. They're fighting. Yeah, great. They handle floods and, and hurricanes. And even this uh, virus, they're handling it much better than we are here. And the casualties are much lower. And they have full, free medical care. You fall on the street and you end up in a hospital, you don't get a bill. You know? And that's what we need here. Well, if we had that, a lot of people wouldn't be dead now because they would have been able to go to the hospital. Think of all the undocumented folks who go to the hospital and don't have the papers and don't have any insurance. They can't afford the bill. I'll stay home. This thing will pass. You know, that kind of attitude. And it doesn't. Serious. And Trump and them know, know that those folks don't get to the hospitals and get under professional care. They're gone. And they accept it. 
just like they accept, go back to work, don't care, make money for the people, we gotta get, I know you're bored being home, so go back to work. That's like saying, give your life for capitalism, Yeah, you know? Don't give your life for Exxon Mobile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. So I don't know if this stuff is morally corrupt and it's bankrupt. It's morally politically bankrupt what they're advocating. That's why I think he will lose this election if we get out and do what we have to do. I don't feel hung up about the Democratic Party or any political party, whatever vehicle you need. You can be in a union that's, that's right-wing led, but in strike time, you got to defend your interests and get out there and fight. Contract time, similarly beyond the leadership. And that is the path towards getting a better leadership, fighting, organizing, class struggle, and all that. So to me, I'm not disturbed by, oh, they're Democrats, etc. I'm not registered Democrat, but um, my friends tell me I should be because I can't participate in the primaries. And uh, my wife says the same thing. So I think, <laughs> and my mother-in-law says the same thing. So I think we went out to alter that. Although I participate in the primaries with a voice. I don't just know. So, but, I think it is the vehicle now to get out of this. It ain't going to always be the vehicle. I will tell you that times are going to get uh, difficult and there are elements in the Democratic Party who are not for full, full economic, social, political equality for all and economic justice for workers and the environment. There's some, so it's going to be a struggle. But someday something will be born in some form that will give a voice to the great majority of working people. Communist Party is going to be part of that. We're not going to be the only part. The notion that we alone can do it would be an illusion, and we don't accept that. I think everyone needs to find their own way, but that's what I really like about the way uh, when I toured the CPOSA headquarters is that there's so much interactivity going on. You guys are working with different organizations in the community, and it's not alone. Yeah, so can we talk about one of my favorite books I've ever read, it changed me, um, was Henry Winston's Strategy for a Black Agenda. This happened in 2016, because I was getting confused with all that identity politics in the media. And it was just like, it was just very hard. And then I read this one sentence where in this book where he says, the oppressors are never divided by color, you can go anywhere, like from like Bangkok to New York, and you'll see uh, all the oppressors have solidarity amongst themselves. And I thought about that. And then I saw how much Trump, quote unquote, hates Muslims, but he loves Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi prince. And then it, it just dawned on me that he was right. So I've been very inspired. I, I then go, went and found all his books and pamphlets. And he actually has a really smart, insightful agenda. So he was the president until of the CPUSA for a long time. So what do you know about him? What did you think of him? How was it getting along with him? <laughs> well, he's a great figure in the party, you know. He joined the party. He came out, you know, he's born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in the height of Jim Crow. <laughs> and his family moved to Kansas City for a better life. But there was Jim Crow there, too. Not as severe as Mississippi, maybe, but it was. And he was a high school student. Of some note, he was quite a, a scholarly young man from a poor, struggling black family and so on. And he carried out some protests in school and they kicked him out of high school. So here he is unemployed, kicked out of high school, the family struggling, et cetera, et cetera. And then he hears somebody gave a leaflet about the hunger march. This is like 
think it was 34. I'm not exactly sure the year. But that, at height of depression, people in trucks, beat up old cars, whatever, were all riding to Washington to confront the federal government around the issue of hunger and homelessness and all this other stuff. So Winston saw it. He said, what the heck, man? I ain't got a job. Let me, let me get on this thing. He got on a truck, literally, and went across the country. And to make a long story short, he eventually uh, got involved in the Young Communist League and the Communist Party. He was the, exec- he was the uh, organizational secretary of the Young Communist League at the height of the 30s. He was the comrade who organized the uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, vets going over from the party. Anyway, he handled the party end of it, going over to Spain to fight the fascists back then. Oh, my God. I did not realize American vets went and joined the partisans. That's oh, it was about a thousand of them, I think. Okay. Well, Paul Robeson went over there saying, uh, no, deep in that. But that's why when the Second World War started, there were a lot of veterans from the Spanish War who were lefties who immediately joined the army. They knew how to carry out a fight. There was a lot of people had to learn. They knew. So, uh, you know, Herbert Aptecker, he, uh, he didn't fight in Spain, for, in Spain, but he was one of the great scholars of our party, especially on the issue of African American. I got his PhD from Columbia on, on Negro slave revolts. So people haven't even talked about that then. And, uh, but he was a colonel in the, in the Second World War, and he was a colonel in charge of a platoon, or no, much more, of a division or something of black, black troops because they were segregated. And he volunteered to be the colonel, and they had some great battles and so on. And, so this all, and Winston went to the war, too, and he was honorably discharged. Uh, they, they first, and he, he was part of the effort to eliminate, to defeat the fascists in France, to, re, to, to do the final wipe-up, whatever they did on the, to the Germans in uh, France. He was there, and he came home and so on. So he had a great sense of humor. He was a wonderful leader. He knew how to get things done. He was the most brilliant organizer I've ever met. From the littlest thing, like club meetings, to the big things like marches on Washington and other things, he knew how to mobilize this party and beyond to take part in it. And when I came in, we had a youth movement, and he was very close to us. And he, but you know, he didn't get out of prison. I think he got out of prison. I, I joined in 61, the same year W.B. Du Bois joined, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I always make this joke. Have you met him? I didn't meet him, no. No, I did meet Paul Robeson, and I didn't meet him. I was on a program with Paul Robeson's a young whippersnapper. But Du Bois joined the same year I joined, 61. So I was making a joke that, you know, he called me up and said, hey, Jarvis, <laughs> What you gonna do this weekend? <laughs> I said, I think I'll join the party. I said, I'm with you, man. <laughs> but it didn't quite happen that way. It was a real long process, but Du Bois understood what he was doing fully and played a great role before he was in the party and after he was in the party. So but but Winston came out of prison in eighty one in sixty one, I believe it was, because while he was in prison, this is the hero in, that he was. Why he was in prison. He was in prison, in a segregated prison, and it was in Kansas. What was that prison in Kansas? It's a federal prison. Anyway, I forget it. But he was segregated off. And he started getting these excruciating headaches. 
And the guards and the, and the prison doctors said, man, you just got to take, take the aspirin, blah, blah, blah. He couldn't sleep. He was writhing in pain all night from these headaches. And John Eft, our attorney at the time, who won all these victories against the federal government under the uh, Subversive Activities Control Board under the Smith Act, uh, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant legal mind, gave his life uh, in, t- in terms of the time he spent uh, helping the party win legality. We actually won legality, even though politically we were fighting for it every day, but we won it legally. So doesn't mean anyone try something, but right now that's what, that we're a legal party. So when Winston was in Rising Pain, uh, John Apter went in and said, uh, well, how you think? He said, I can't take it, man. It's killing me. The pain in my head and everything. And he said he had never seen Winston so down and, and so depressed and so struggling. He came out, and the party under his sort of guidance formed a Free Henry Instant Committee. People were demonstrating all around the country, including they demonstrated in front of the White House, Free Henry Winston, that he is uh, seriously ill because they, they finally found out he had a brain tumor. And it was impinging on his vocal, not vocal, his vision, his eye, but it's, it's nerves behind it, with the optical nerves. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't see. And he thought he was going to die. And he was right. He would have died. So in 1960, when Kennedy got in and they petitioned the federal government, Kennedy had the good sense of, of cutting his time in prison and releasing him. That saved his life, actually. It wasn't Kennedy. It was the movement. Kennedy just had to follow it. And he went off and got an operation. They only were able to preserve a slight bit of vision in one eye, right in the corner of one eye, he could see stuff. The other eye was completely blind by then, but he survived it. He led the party for 20 years, I think up to 1986 or something, and he, he became a leader in 1863. Up to 86, he was a national chairman of the party. And in the communist movement, the chairmans are like the organizers, and the general secretary are like the main political leaders. But in this case, the team of Gus Hall, Henry Winston, black, white workers, both shared the duties and they, inter- they intersected on the organization and politics. And, and when he, you, so you read his book, he was a brilliant thinker and he uh, made an enormous contribution to the party, especially keeping the party together, as you can imagine. Yeah. The main thing, main thing the enemy tried to do always is split the party from within. They always had trouble from the outside. Yeah. You know, to split the Smith Act, people said, whoa, we can't do that. We're going to fight this thing. Blah, blah. But if you get somebody inside, oh, the party's lying, it's screwy, you know, and all that. And not having a healthy discussion, but rather kind of condemning and splitting. I don't like you anymore. Well, you know, if you let that stuff get in, that's more painful and more damaging True. than even what the government does. Because every time the party was kind of liquidated, it came from an internal conflict, I think, egged on by people who had no no interest in the party succeeding and so on. And we always had to be cautious and try to find a way to discuss differences in a comradely way and to keep the general hopes and dreams of comrades and fighting capacity uh, real and growing uh, and keep the party together. That's very important. So he, uh, I, I just checked, um, he died in December of 1986. So he led the party till the last day. Yeah, he did. 
He did. He did. And uh, when he was living in Harlem and helping, but he was in the national leadership working with uh, Ben Davis and Paul Robeson and Claudia Jones. Had a hell of a party organization up there and unemployed councils and youth YCL, you know. One of the YCL leaders danced at the Cotton Club. Gretz <laughs> <laughs> Johnson, and he wrote a book about it. And, and in that book, he describes party organization. It was amazing. You know, the Columbia University students were there. But anyway, I don't want to get, get off on a tangent. But here's the thing that when he had all these credentials and only that over uh, 60, 70 years of his life, maybe more, from the 30s on through, he was dedicated to the movement and a source of inspiration for a lot of people. So, you know, he, his slogan when he came out of prison was, they have robbed me of my sight, but not my vision. That is brilliant. Yeah, we put out a button. I'll give you that button when I see oh, it. That would be great. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. And so for me, it really was very illuminating because I understood there was so much confusion going on with the media and the way they use identity politics in the worst sort of way to divide workers as opposed to unite them. And so that helped me kind of navigate and talk to other people in a way that it, it was great. So I recommend everyone read that book. And can we just go through some random rumors about the CPUSA we hear online yeah. so we can debunk this? Okay, the first one. Oh, this is really stupid, but please indulge me. Isn't the CPUSA all run by feds? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be around if that was true. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think the record of the party, go read our program. It ain't no, that's just, just that's <laughs> no capitalist program. And that's a program to get to socialism. Some parties don't even have a program that detailed about how to do it. It's not like what you do every morning when you get up out of bed, but it is a strategic and tactical gift to the struggle that happens. And, you know, there was, there was a leader in our labor department for many years, a friend of mine. Uh, Roscoe Proctor in the West Coast. He's a longshoreman, mm-hmm. and he worked for the party in the Labor Department for many years before he passed. And he used to say, the party has to fight for a high altitude of uh, ideological, political, theoretical understanding. If you keep it at a high level, meaning principle, fighting for the people is a, you know, is, is a basic thing we do and that's the thing we will not be turned away from and training our people on how to handle the complex question of ideology economics and all that if you keep it on a high level it's like rats in a plane informers come into the party and rats in a plane if they get into a plane and it gets to a high altitude <laughs> they can't survive you see that's what he used to argue we have to keep the party at a high altitude and, and and, and it's true, they, they, they can't survive. And we, we had, uh, when I was uh, in the youth movement, we had uh, an informer in the, in the youth movement, and about six of them, and they were paid by the FBI. And same with, uh, uh, there were those in the party. They were not anywhere. This is a cowardly assessment, because that's like reading history and going, oh, the FBI did all that. No, they didn't, find, they didn't organize the CIO. They didn't organize the rent strikes. They didn't organize the, the tennis unions and, and the unemployed councils. They didn't organize. You know the role of the party on the 63 March. Very important. FBI and all that crap. But in 63, the Kennedys opposed 
the March on Washington. They, they were in the learning curve about civil rights. They weren't there yet. They opposed it. They thought it would be damaging and, and dangerous and it would have riots because all those black people coming in. They passed measures like closing all the liquor stores in Washington. They put maximum pressure on King and them not to do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. It's dangerous. It's going to start a riot, blah, blah, blah. And King and them were considering, by the way, not doing it. So the party still had deep roots in the labor movement and among its members and bases all across the country. And in New York, we had a very good base in a number of pretty big unions, healthcare and as well as District 65, which was a service union. And, you know, I think the workers at Macy's were in it and other, uh, you know, uh, what we call service workers. So anyway, when Henry Winston and Ben Davis just got out of prison, and that was just before the march, and he knew all these people, and they said, they're concerned about the march. What if labor were to establish its security system to protect the march? Yeah, how are we going to get that done? So Ben said, look, I'll go to Chicago and talk to the meatpackers. I'll go to Michigan talk to the UAW. We go talk to District 65 and healthcare workers. And if you notice, when King is making I've Had a Dream, all of union hats around him. I mean, they were literally surrounded. You, you, if you wanted to hurt Dr. King, you're going to have to hurt some of them, because they were right there with him. And they went ahead with it on the basis of that. And that march was the most peaceful, beautiful, uplifting, everything we, we hope and dream for our country to move towards. It was integrated. It was predominantly black. I was there as a young member of the party. All the people were there. It was a beautiful thing. And it set a new stage in the struggle for Africa. And so the right wing went on a rampage as a result of that. But they, they knew their times were numbered. When you saw that kind of huge 250,000 people, I think it was more than that, uh, coming together for, for peace, jobs, and freedom. Okay. The second rumor I keep hearing online is, isn't the Communist Party class, re no, is it, was it class reductionist? Re I forgot. They say that you only focus on class but not race. That's economist. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, obviously. No, I mean, I have to say, you can't count for every comrade what they might say. Uh -huh. But and you can't account for all the groups who do have an economist approach. And some of the social, social Democrats that's happened, although uh -huh. there's new, new waves now. That's exactly, you read uh, George, My uh, George uh, not George Myers. Oh, no, George Myers did write a book on social democracy uh -huh. in the labor movement and dealt with uh, those kind of questions. You couldn't be the labor movement by simply talking bread and butter. But if you didn't talk bread and butter, you weren't going to be successful. You wouldn't. These workers were not ready on symbolically, you know, to get the union. They wanted the union to have a better life, and that's what you had to fight for. There ain't nothing wrong with that. That's fighting for surplus value. They create the value, but they only get a portion of it. The unions get big, they get a bigger portion. They get vacation. You know, you said unions, unions are what made vacations. You didn't have no vacations for workers. They, weekends. Yeah, weekend. The one made the weekend. Absolutely. And all those things, you know, so. I know what I'm going to think of it. I was just going to say that that's the one thing I'm very proud of my home state, Michigan, because the United Auto Workers fought for the weekend. That's right. And one last thing 
I'm really one thing that it's kind of funny. Um, I'm writing an article of what's going on in Belarus, and I was able to connect with our comrades in Belarus, who were able to tell me about what kind of people are in the protests and stuff. And I noticed that there's a lot of leftists. This is the joke we make. Um, who is like fiscally left, social issues very left, foreign policy Mike Pompeo. <laughs> um, so how do leftists become in America become more aware? as to not just be regime change dupes. Like, what is it that leftists need to do in order to be a true leftist in the world sense? Well, you, you talk about proletarian internationalism as a longstanding uh, principle of the communist movement. Mm -hmm. And then in the Second World War, communists went to fight fascism. First, they did it in Spain mm -hmm. and when it was really a, a difficult battle. A lot of people lost their lives. They didn't win you know, in Spain. And then, but in the Second World War, the Eastern European communists, particularly the Red Army, had a slogan, communist up front. Yep. And the, and the greatest number of people who died were likely party members. Maybe it wasn't the greatest, but it was the greatest chunk, you know, the greatest group that died. And it's, it's the, the party's heart and soul is anti-imperialism. Henry Winston, you've already read in that book, he said that uh -oh, yes. race, racism is the Achilles heel for which name, for U.S. imperialism. Yes. And he was arguing that all of Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Europe, and here, want to see equality. Not all, but you know, they want to see equality. And they don't like this thing of, of, of going into countries and Bombing. taking over this and taking over that and so on. And they can be mobilized against the war. If you have the confidence to know that they can be mobilized. Like I hate people who come and say, oh, you know, all the, all the workers there for the war. They weren't, their kids were gone. We had three cases that the Communist Party youth movement put forward with the support of the party, of course. First one was the Fort Hood Three. Three young soldiers, Dennis Moore, David Sammons, and J.J. Johnson, brave. They said, we're not going to resist the draft. We're going to go in. But when we're in and get the order to go to Vietnam, we're not going to go. And they didn't go. And they got three years in prison for not going. But when they got to the prison, <laughs> there were hundreds of brothers, you know, who had done the same thing. I heard about you guys, man. I said, hey, that's the way out of this mess. <laughs> but it ain't funny, but that's what, that's what they did. And either in, in all three of them are still functioning, political, decent, working class people today. And then we had the case of Ron Lockman, African-American. He was my barber in Philadelphia. <laughs> he had a good job with the barber. You know, barbers make a lot of money because they don't necessarily show it on the books. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> <laughs> the cash money is a cash thing. So... Uh, he had a good job. He had working with this brother. He was a little bit, a little bit of a cultural nationalist, but a nice guy, you know. I had to go to have great discussions. He pulled me aside one time. He said, "Jarvis, uh, I got a problem. I got drafted." I said, "Wow." He said, "And you know, he was a progressive guy." He said, "I'm not going." And but he did go. He joined. He went. But when it came to getting on the ship or the plane to go to Vietnam, he said, "No." Like, and his slogan was. I I refuse to participate in this war. I follow the four or three. So then there was another guy, 
Now, Johnson, J.J. Johnson was African-American. Dennis Moore was Puerto Rican. And Samus is a white kid from rural California. Ron, Ron, Ron Lopin was an African-American kid from North Philadelphia. Hardcore ghetto. Barbershop. And he then I got a call from the comrades in Pittsburgh who were in a youth organization at the time. And they said, we had the boys club then. And he said, um, we got a young guy, young white guy came, walked into our office and said, he, he don't want to go to Vietnam. Can, can anybody help him? Yeah. His name was George Johnson, working class white guy from Pittsburgh. He followed the four to three and John Lockham. And all of them got time. But on good behavior, it was three years, and they are alive and well and kicking and anti-imperialist. So this was the essence of the party. So when the Vietnamese had uh, the worst period in the war, when Nixon was about to bomb uh, Hanoi, we got a message that they wanted. I was running for vice president of the United States along with Gus Hall. I was running for vice president. He was running for president. And that they would like to invite a delegation to Vietnam to see firsthand what was going on. We weren't the first group to go, and we weren't the last group to go, but we were a group, only, only presidential candidates to go, and we made jokes about, well, Nixon is so scared of our, our campaign that he's trying to kill us in Vietnam because <laughs> the bombs start coming. The bombs start coming. We were in the middle of a raid. We were down in the, we were visiting this museum, and the guy says, come on, they're gonna bomb the alarm. So I went down three stories, this little room, and we were down there with the editor of the Hanoi Times, who was a Buddhist, and who, uh, but also was in the Workers' Party of Vietnam, which was like the Communist Party. And so we were joking, are we safe down there? He said, yeah, you should be all right. He said, except for one thing. He said, if there's a direct hit, we will join the great Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> and then, but so, but but we were there, and we came back, and we said they bombing hospitals, schools, marketplaces, and so on. And the right wing went nuts about it, but we did our job. And uh, so we had this deep anti-imperialist thing, and coming from the leading imperialist country, it meant something to the world moving. Oh, absolutely! And thank you so much. This is, has been an honor to have you on. Have a great day. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.